0: Some people think of the first 11 chapters of Genesis as only a prologue or filler to get to the story of Abraham, but it's in those chapters where the key theme of rebellion is first introduced, and that rebellion spreads then throughout the earth. In the beginning chapters of Genesis, we are also introduced to the idea of exile. And it's these themes that culminate in one short story in chapter 11. It's a story about a tower reaching into the heavens and God confusing language to disrupt a rebellion. Welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and we are taking a few episodes to look a little deeper into the Rethinking Scripture projects. These are the places where I try to follow biblical themes from the beginning chapters of Genesis through to their completion at the end of the story. And as we will see today, there are stories in the New Testament that are often intentionally hitched to the corresponding stories in the Old Testament. And the biblical authors assumed that their readers would pick up on those connections and understand the extended context. But oftentimes, the way we study the Bible in our modern setting doesn't lend to make those types of connections. We naturally assume maybe that the biblical authors are writing to the 21st century reader, and wouldn't that be nice? We presume that the Bible is written to us, but it wasn't. It was written to people that lived in a far different culture and who had dramatically different assumptions about the cosmos. And recently, few scholars have addressed this discrepancy the way we interpret scripture from our own cultural lens, more than Dr. Michael Heiser. We'll talk more specifically about Heiser's view of the Tower of Babel in a little bit, but I'd like to read this from his website, moreunseenrealm.com, which is a companion website to his Unseen Realm book that was published back in 2015. This from his website. He begins by using a line, actually, that John Walton has promoted. And that line is, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. Heiser then follows that with this. It's a supernatural epic articulated by people whose worldview is not our own. The Unseen Realm, title of his book, connects readers to that worldview. By way of illustration, he says this. If you were sitting in a small group with the Bible and an Israelite from 1000 BC was there with you, or a Jew from the first century AD, the era of Jesus, when it was their turn to tell everyone what they thought a given passage meant, their answer would be unlike that of anyone else in the room. The reason is simple. No one else shares their worldview. Christians have been taught that interpreting the Bible in context means thinking about what precedes and what follows the verse that they're currently looking at. Or perhaps it's about knowing how ancient people lived through artifacts discovered by archaeologists. But Heiser says that's not it at all. There's far more to understanding how a person thinks than listening to words and knowing where they worked and what they used to cook their meals. The only way to really understand a person's communication, especially when all we have is writing, is to be inside their head, to know how they think and process life in their world. How can you possibly understand what someone else has written if you don't look at the world the way they do and know what it is they believed and why? Heiser says, the only correct context for understanding what the biblical writers were thinking when they wrote scripture is the ancient context in which they lived. That context is inextricably bound to worldview. And Heiser points out that we have lost this context as modern readers. He says, most Christians presume that the right context for interpreting the Bible is the history of Christianity, but it isn't. Another problem, he says, is that a lot of what Christians have been taught about the unseen world is either incomplete or inaccurate. Christian beliefs about angels and demons largely come from Hollywood, Milton's Paradise Lost, or church tradition. And even more troublesome is the propensity of the modern Christian mind to be selectively supernatural. Christians believe in things like a Creator, a Trinity, and the Incarnation, but balk at a whole host of strange passages in the Bible's pages, never daring to ask why what they deem too weird to believe is less rational than the core points of Christian doctrine. The biblical writers would not have been so conflicted. Heiser closes this way. When we dismiss their supernatural worldview, we can't hope to understand what they meant by what they wrote. Well, the Rethinking Babel project uncovers the biblical theology of the use of language. And before we even get too far into it, I feel like I have to talk about the word Babel. Because while most would say Babel, it's also often referred to as Babel, just a different pronunciation, kind of like the Augustine and Augustine situation that I described in a previous episode. And while the academic side of me loves to refer to this as Babel, our culture's understanding of Babel as related to language and also our pronunciation of the great city of Babylon and the connection that this story has with that place causes me often to refer to this project as the Rethinking Babel project. And the one thing that this project tries to do is take the idea of what God is doing with language and communication throughout the biblical story and try to sew some of the pieces together that you might not have connected before. From Eden in Genesis chapter 2 to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, To the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22, God has used language to help reveal his plan for creation. I've outlined some of my ideas in the Rethinking Babel Project blog post. I'll put a link in the show notes to that blog post. But it's this study that will help unpack the sometimes confusing circumstances of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it gives further perspective to understand the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21 and 22. But before we get to the New Testament, I like to think of this project as happening in two different sections. One is trying to get to a, a baseline understanding of what is going on in this very short story in Genesis chapter 11 that we refer to as the Tower of Babel. We'll talk about that first, and I will introduce some ideas, specifically ideas that Michael Heiser has that may be a surprise to you, things that you haven't considered yet, things that might make you a bit uncomfortable. But that shouldn't be anything new if you've been around the podcast for any time at all. So we'll try and get a context of how this story in Genesis chapter 11 fits into the first 11 chapters of Genesis as kind of a culminating bookend to the first part of the biblical story and how it introduces this idea of Abraham and a family that God chooses. That's in the first half. And then the second half is a study that I have been doing for a number of years. Uh, started when I was pastoring. And I've got some ideas about how the gift of speaking in tongues might fit into our modern-day context, not just practically, but probably more so theologically. And I think if we can get a theological framework around what gifts are, and why they're used, hopefully that structure, that theological understanding, would then drive what we think about its practical use. And the reason I point this out is because it often happens the other way around. We often look at the practical use of gifts first, and it's our cultural understanding of those gifts that then drive what they must mean theologically. And that's completely backwards. So I'm really excited about today's episode. It's a quick look into the Rethinking Babel project, and let's get started by going back to the Old Testament and taking a look at the event described in Genesis chapter 11. As we go back and think about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it obviously starts with the creation story. And we've talked about that not only in the Rethinking Rest Project episode, but also in the Rethinking Eden episode. And from a theological standpoint, what I'd like you to come out of those stories with an understanding of is that God is taking matter that's in a chaotic state, and he's giving order and function to that chaos. And that's an order and function that God, as the creator of the cosmos, it's his right to establish that order. What that order looks like, how it functions, that's his privilege. And so we come out of that first creation event in chapter 1, and God rests on the seventh day. And what that seventh day rest gives us a picture of is God ruling a cosmos that has been given a function and an order by its creator. And as he rules it, that is described in an ancient idea as resting. And those parts of the creation under his rule and authority that acknowledge him and follow the rules that he set up for that function and order, they are at rest as well. And that was the case for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden for a period of time until they were tricked into thinking that they might be able to come up with a better function and order than God did. And so when they went away from the order that God had given them, And decided to eat of the tree. What that produced was rebellion. Rebellion against God's order and function as the creator of the universe. And it brought them outside of their place of rest. And they were exiled out of the Garden of Eden. No longer to have access back into the garden or the tree of life, but now they are to go out into the chaos that existed in the rest of the world outside of the garden. They still have the same mandate that God gives, but now they're doing it out in a chaotic world, not from a place of rest. And we see that story recycle a couple times just in the first 11 chapters. In chapter 4, we have Cain and Abel Another example of some of the creation trying to fall under the function and order of God and part of the creation not wanting to follow those limits. And after the Cain and Abel story, we go into chapter five and we have a book of the generations of Adam. And this is a rough genealogy of the descendants from Adam to Noah. What's happening in this time is the function and order that God had created, the creation is going further and further away from that function and order. We see it in characters like Enoch. We see it in Lamech. And theologically speaking, what God does with the Noah story then is he attempts to bring function and order back to the creation in a dramatic way by eliminating all but one family and keeping the one family on the earth that recognizes that God has the authority to create that function and order. Well, the story of the flood, if you look at it from a literary standpoint, it mimics the story of creation from Genesis chapter 1. When I teach, I love going through the story of Noah because the way it's outlined, there's decreation language. The function and order that God had set up is taken away. And then new function and order is brought as the ark settles and the animals come out onto the land and ultimately the people follow. It's following the same literary pattern that we saw back in Genesis chapter 1. And the expectation of ancient readers would have been, well, maybe... This time, maybe this time, the function and order that God set up will be followed and his plan will work. The expectations are high as Noah gets off the boat in chapter 8 because he built an altar to the Lord in verse 20 and he took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled, it says, the soothing aroma. And I love soothing aroma. I love that translation. But behind the language, another way to understand that description is as an aroma of rest. The original language brings out that idea. And so the hope coming off the ark is that this Noah, this second Adam type character that is placed into this new creation and given the same mandates that Adam had to be fruitful and multiply and spread throughout the earth and do good work. He plants a garden just like Adam. He offers soothing, restful sacrifices to God and the expectations are high. And then we're introduced to the story in Genesis chapter 9, where it does say that Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. That all sounds really good. But it says he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. And then there's a very confusing description about what one of his sons does. Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, and Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. This has been interpreted a number of different ways. I'm not going to get into the details. Without defining exactly what happened, it's clear from the text that what we thought was going to be a really nice reboot with Noah as the new Adam and his family starting to multiply and fill the earth quickly, the chaos starts coming in to the picture again. And because of the event in the tent, curses are handed down at the end of chapter nine, just like Adam and Eve received curses before they were exiled from the garden. And then chapter 10 goes into the table of nations. This is one of those chapters that unless you know what's happening from a theological standpoint, you probably just skip right over it. It's a list of names and places that don't probably mean much to most people, but it does outline the families that descended from Noah through his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that brings us to the story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. So what we've seen just in the first 10 chapters is this setting up of order, a rebellion against that order, exile out of a place of rest from the presence of God, and that repeated cycle a number of times through different smaller stories which leads to this bigger story of the Tower of Babel. We've just been introduced to the Table of Nations, the descendants of the three sons of Noah, which sets the table for another rebellious chaos event from which there will be an exile away from the presence of God. I'm going to read just a little bit from Walton's The Lost World of Adam and Eve. He writes this about the Tower of Babel story. After order was all but eliminated by the flood because of an advanced state of disorder, the geopolitical order known from the ancient world took shape. Genesis chapter 10, the Table of Nations, representing the known world in the second millennium B.C. But... In Genesis 11, we find out that the impetus for that geopolitical order came about in an unusual way through the building of a city featuring a prominent tower. Most interpreters, Walton says, agree that the Tower of Babel should be understood as a ziggurat. Ziggurats were the famous towers that characterized all the major cities of ancient Mesopotamia. They were built adjacent to the temple and were part of sacred space. Modern readers are often confused about the tower, having assumed that the people building it intended to use it to ascend to heaven. In fact, however, all evidence points in the other direction. The ziggurats were provided to facilitate the deity's descent and were intended to invite him to do so. The idea was that God would have a convenient means by which to descend to the temple so that he could receive the worship of his people. Walton points out that the problem in Genesis 11, however, is seen in the motivation of the people. When it says in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, that the people wanted to make a name for themselves— The problem is not their pride, which is a common interpretation. The problem is they were constructing sacred space, but they are doing so For their own benefit, that their name might be exalted as a thriving, prosperous civilization. Making a name for oneself in the ancient world was a way to secure one's memory through successive generations. But sacred space should exalt and establish the name of God. But these people see it only as a way to improve their situation. God will presumably be flattered and pleased and therefore bring prosperity to the people. So Walton just points out that in Genesis chapter 11, it recounts the initiative of people after the flood to reestablish sacred space. And it's just that sacred space that had been lost in the aftermath of the fall. But unfortunately, the creation was motivated by all the wrong reasons. God's not pleased and he disperses the people by confusing their languages. This brings non-order to their community and makes it impossible to complete their project. And at the same time, it becomes the basis for the geopolitical order that is described in chapter 10. Well, as we dive a little further into the theology of the Tower of Babel, I'm going to bring in some work by Dr. Michael Heiser, who is the host of the Naked Bible podcast. It is one of the podcasts I listen to all the time. And if you're a serious Bible student and you're looking for maybe a podcast with some substance, with some deep theological substance, the Naked Bible podcast is one that I would recommend. And in recent years, Dr. Michael Heiser has looked outside the Bible and the context outside the Bible to try and construct a worldview that would have existed at the time that the Bible was written, not just the Old Testament times, but also in New Testament times. And as I read about in the first section of this episode, the worldview that somebody in ancient times in that culture would have had is going to be dramatically different than the one we have today. And part of Heiser's focus is on the idea of marrying the unseen realm with the realm that we know and understand and live in on a daily basis. And he suggests that the ancient reader would have had cultural expectations about the unseen world that we seem to have lost today. And in the recounting of the Tower of Babel, he goes back into Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, which tells a really strange story. And it says, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God, that's uh, Elohim behind our English translation. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And then in verse 4, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, and those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of thoughts of his hearts were on the evil continually. This corruption of mankind in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6 is the focus of a lot of Dr. Heiser's research into the cultural understanding of what they would have understood was going on in this passage. And in modern day, we have two or three different ways we have interpreted this passage. But Heiser's argument is that there's really probably just one way that an ancient reader would have understood it. And he suggests that it would have been understood that the sons of God are not men, but that they're spiritual beings that somehow come into a physical form and actually have sexual relations with women and produce offspring. And as crazy as that sounds to our modern ears. It's Dr. Heiser's work that has convinced me that I needed to go back and rethink the possibility that that's what the first readers of this text would have understood to be going on. Because whether their view of the cosmos is right or wrong, if that's what they would have been understanding at the time, that's going to factor into how the rest of the story should be understood from their perspective as well. And I know some of you, just by the short explanation I just gave, might be having a really hard time just thinking of whether spiritual beings could take bodily form and produce offspring. But I want to remind you of a story about Sodom and Gomorrah. Because it's in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that two angels visit and are housed by an occupant of the city. And men of that city come knocking on their door for one specific reason. And it's to have sexual relations with the guests inside the house. And to just show how some of these ideas and stories could be threaded together in the biblical mind, it would make sense. That if in Genesis chapter six you have spiritual beings and humans unnaturally commingling, that possibly the events of Sodom and Gomorrah would be on the same level, where humans and spiritual beings are going outside of their respective order against God's order and function for the cosmos and creating chaos. And it's that understanding, this idea that the unseen realm and the seen realm are unnaturally trying to connect and go outside of God's boundaries, that replays over and over again in the first part of the biblical story and culminates in the interpretation of the Tower of Babel. For the next part, I'll be referencing a blog article that Heiser wrote for Logos Bible Software. It's called The Tower of Babel Story, What Really Happened. And I'll put a link in the show notes for those of you that would like to read the whole article. Heiser says this, The famous Tower of Babel story and how it was built is about much more than an ill-fated construction project and language confusion. It's at the heart of the Old Testament worldview. Babylon was where people sought to make a name for themselves by building a tower that reaches into the heavens, the realm of the gods. The city is cast as the source of sinister activity and knowledge. And then Heiser includes the text of Genesis 11:1 through 9. So I'll just go ahead and read it from his blog post. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top reaches to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that humankind was building. And Yahweh said, Behold, there are one people with one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. So now, nothing that they intend to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so they will not understand each other's language. So Yahweh scatters them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, for there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Back to Heiser, he asked the question, did God act alone? And he says, you'll notice right away that there's the same sort of plural exhortation going on in verse 7 of this episode, As you saw back in Genesis 1.26, which reads, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Back to Heiser, he says, in chapter 11, Yahweh is proclaiming, let us go down and confuse their language. As was the case in Genesis 126, the plural announcement is followed by the actions of only one being, Yahweh. So, Yahweh scattered them, chapter 11, verse 8. It's at this point, Heiser says, that most Bible readers presume there's nothing more to think about. That's because other Old Testament passages that speak of this event tend to be omitted from the discussion. But the most important of these is Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. And just breaking away from Heiser for a second... If you look into and start studying Dr. Michael Heiser, you'll understand that he promotes a Deuteronomy 32 worldview. So as he's breaking away from the Tower of Babel story here and taking you to Deuteronomy 32, what he's suggesting is the description that we're about to understand from Deuteronomy 32 plays directly into the worldview that people would have had as they read the story of the tower in Genesis 11. So let's see what Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 says. It says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And Heiser suggests that Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 describes how Yahweh's dispersal of the nations at Babel resulted in his disinheriting those nations as his people. This is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 1, 18 through 25, which is a similar passage wherein God gave humankind over to their persistent rebellion. The statement in Deuteronomy 32, 9 that the Lord's portion is his people Jacob, his allotted heritage, tips us off that a contrast in affection and ownership is intended. Yahweh, in effect, decided that the people of the world's nations were no longer going to be in relationship with him. He would begin anew. He would enter into a covenant relationship with a new people that did not yet exist, Israel. Heiser says that the implications of this decision of God and this particular passage are crucial to understanding much of what's in the Old Testament. But most English Bibles do not read according to the number of the sons of God in Deuteronomy 32.8. Rather, they read according to the number of the sons of Israel. The difference derives from disagreements between manuscripts of the Old Testament. Sons of God is the correct reading. And we know that now from what we've uncovered from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Heiser says, frankly, you don't need to know all the technical reasons for why the sons of God reading in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 is what the verse originally said. You just need to think a bit about the wrong reading, the sons of Israel. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 harks back to events in the Tower of Babel story, an event that occurred before the call of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. So it means that the nations of the earth were divided at Babel before Israel even existed as a people. So it would make no sense for God to divide up the nations of the earth according to the number of the sons of Israel because there was no Israel at the time. So, in linking Babel back to Genesis chapter 6, Heiser says it might seem that God's response at the Tower of Babel incident was overly severe. But consider the context. The point is not that Yahweh was a glorified building inspector. Gods were perceived to live on mountains. The Tower of Babel story is regarded by all scholars as one of Mesopotamia's famous man-made sacred mountains, a ziggurat. Ziggurats were divine abodes places where Mesopotamians believed heaven and earth intersected. The nature of this structure makes evident the purpose in building it, to bring the divine down to earth. So the building of the Tower of Babel meant perpetuating Babylonian religious knowledge and substituting the rule of Babel's God for the rule of Yahweh and Yahweh would have none of it. After the flood, God had commanded humanity once again to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth back in Genesis 9:1, These words reiterated the original Edenic intention. But instead of obeying and having Yahweh be their God, the people gathered to build the tower. The theological messaging of the story is clear. Humanity had shunned Yahweh and his plan to restore Eden through them. So he would shun them and start again. And while the decision was harsh, the other nations were not completely forsaken. Yahweh disinherited the nations. And in the very next chapter of Genesis, he calls Abraham out of, you guessed it, Mesopotamia. Again, this is not accidental. Yahweh would take a man from the heart of the rebellion and make a new nation, Israel. But in his covenant with Abram, God said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abram, through his descendants. And so the covenant language reveals that it was God's intention, right on the heels of his decision to punish the nations, that the Israelites would serve as a conduit for their return to the true God. This is one of the reasons Israel is later called a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19.6. Israel would be in covenant with the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Those disinherited would be in spiritual bondage to the corrupt sons of God, but Israel would be a conduit, a mediator. Yahweh would leave a spiritual breadcrumb trail back to himself. That path would wind through Israel and ultimately Israel's Messiah. Heiser finishes his thought this way, From the fateful decision at Babel onward, the story of the Old Testament is about Israel versus the disinherited nations and Yahweh versus the corrupt rebel gods of those nations. The division of the nations and their allotment under other Elohim is behind the scenes in all sorts of places in biblical history. So as we start to unpack the Rethinking Babel project, we've really just touched base into the Old Testament foundations of what the original readers may have understood was going on in this biblical story. It's a story of God setting up his function and order of the cosmos and a repeated story of how that creation rebels against God's functional order, tries to create a name for themselves instead of glorifying the name of God and how over and over again God gives another chance, another way for his plan of Eden to expand throughout the nations and cover the entire earth, a way for that to be accomplished. And as we just saw, the Tower of Babel story is foundational in the understanding of who Abraham is. Why is it that God chose that person to enter into covenant with? It's because he had a hope that through that man, a nation would be born that would draw the rest of the world back into his place of rest. And we're going to let that thought round out this week's episode. And we'll close with just having covered the Old Testament. And in the next episode, we'll continue on in our observations about this Tower of Babel story and the Rethinking Babel project. And we'll take it into the New Testament. And we'll see how the Messiah Jesus begins to undo the curse that was handed down at Babel. Well, that's all I've got for today. Thanks again for listening, and please take some time to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.